Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Welcome to the Howie Games. I'm Howie, which makes sense, I guess. Firstly, thanks for tuning in. I love you. Seriously, I do. I love you for tuning in and having a listen. So the Howie Games revolves around sport. A little bit different, I guess, to modern radio or telly where five minutes is typically all you get with a guest before a song and an ad. Here on the Howie Games, we can just keep banging on and on and on, which is a beautiful thing. Every Thursday, the Howie Games will bring you a sporting guest, some absolute superstars. I mean, really world-famous types, others that are a little bit more low-key, but all with great stories to tell. The aim, I guess, is to really show you who these people are, what makes them tick, their successes, their failures, their hopes, their dreams, and tell you some of the stories behind the headlines that you definitely will never have heard. Mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye. Listen to me, time is your key. You will find out by and by. Episode one, Adam Gilchrist. Gilly! You may know him as one of Australia's greatest ever cricketers. One really a few cricketers to actually change the game. I guess before Gilly, a wicket keeper could average 15 or 20 with a bat and take catches. Post Gilly, the wiki really needs to average 35 plus and hopefully give them a real belt. What you might not know about Adam is that his mates call him Eric. We'll uh, explain to you why in the podcast. And he's one of those guys, when he walks into a room, he engages everyone. He's so warm, he's so open, he's so friendly. He'll have a chat with anyone, he'll ask people questions. And as a result, everybody, I mean, everybody loves Gilly. And people aren't afraid to tell him either, whether it's at the airport, a cricket game, dinner, cabbies. Cabbies, you want to see the cabbies when Gilly gets into their taxi. Their faces just light up. People just adore Adam Gilchrist. And as soon as they see him, they just drop the old, Gilly! And he just responds with a wave and a smile. People just love the man. I first met Gilly at a wardrobe fitting for the Big Bash three years ago. And like most people, I was a bit in awe of him. But he came up and said g'day straight away and started asking me about my family. I didn't see him for probably two months after that, the night before the first Big Bash game on Channel 10. And he came up straight away and immediately asked me about my family and used all their names. So he'd remembered them all, which that's cool. That is seriously cool. The man is a dude. I hope you like the Howie games. Please like it on iTunes. Some more people can hear Daddy's Cool Podcast. Peace out. Oh, my Jaja, tell me why won't they open up their eyes? They could help out if they try, try, try. If they would try, try, try. They've got to try, try, try. Okay, here he is, a man that had no peer on the field and still doesn't in the bar. Gilly! That's what I proposed to my wife just over there where that geezer's taken that photo. <laughs> We're recording now. Welcome <laughs> to the Howie Games. <laughs> Hello, Welcome mate. to the Howie Games. Thanks for telling me it was switched on. <laughs> this is, uh, <laughs> well, you're talking about Mel straight away, the, the yeah. love of your life, a young lady you met. Oh, how old were you? Oh, we were 12. <laughs> we had a little fling when we were 13 and then had the mandatory... What's a fling involved when you're 13? Uh, took her my first date, took her to see the romantic comedy that was Rambo. Um, <laughs> well, that's the way I thought it was going to go. But, uh, yeah, Rambo, and we hung out. We were part of a, a circle of friends at school where we all hung out, but then we had about a three-year hiatus and then had another crack in year 11 and we remain in wedlock. <laughs> 
since then. Well, we didn't get married then, but we got married a few years later. Jeez, we've got straight into it, haven't we? Well, we're sitting here at the Park Iat, which is, well, the nicest hotel in the world, and we're looking over Sydney Harbour. So did you go down on bended knee here? I did. We had dinner just over in the rocks down on the... uh, at the the uh, Wolfie's restaurant over there, and then made the little trek over just right on the point there at Circular Quay, and uh, mate, pop the question down on her knee. I didn't get down right. on her knee. Yeah, and the other thing I didn't do, how he was ask her dad was her beforehand. It's one regret I do have. Um, I was talking to my sons about this the other day. It's mm. well and truly entrenched in their mind. Whenever they get married go and ask the father-in-law first. So, yeah, we went to the little uh, – there's a little red phone box in the rocks just around the corner here, good old-fashioned phone booth where we went and rang my now parents-in-law and um, and it was only them where the penny dropped the as the coins money. dropped. <laughs> I went, jeez, I forgot to ring the was big fella. Was it okay with it? Was it? Was, well, we'd been hanging out for a while. He was our teacher. He was our industrial arts teacher at school, so he knew me pretty well. And, uh, yeah, I think it was – It was. I think it was expected, but – yeah, just wish I had that time again. It's a funny thing, I guess, fame, and you know, you're a famous character, let's be honest. Is it reassuring to know that you've been with your partner when you were just another kid at school? Oh, very much so, actually, yeah. I mean, clearly I don't know any other way. Mm. Um, haven't experienced, um, you know, reaching the levels that I aspired to and then suddenly meeting someone then. Um but uh, I don't think it was any um, coincidence that the, the the core or a reasonably strong core of, of the group of players that I played through that time in the Australian team with had uh, long-standing, you know, partners, relationships from, from school. Uh, Matty Hayden, Justin Langer, Steve Waugh, and prior to that, Mark Taylor had been um, seeing Judy for a long, long time. So it's not the be all and end all but um but we had a, a good group of guys we used to all you know have dinner together with our wives and and they'd have a bit of a chuckle about it about the fact that well times change technology changes but they'd all chuckle that saying that they just used to be wives and mums and housewives um without trying to be derogatory about that but yep. uh, but nowadays that you know a lot of sporting personalities partners have they are Twitter handles and blogs yep. and, and fashion yeah, blogs yeah, and so, this and that, which is fine. It's the way the times are, and and the, and the girls that are doing that, clearly there's um, a space for that. They love it, and they, and why shouldn't they have their own career and and um, and ID in the world, not just being a a player's wife or partner. But uh, yeah, times change. But it was it was nice to have that foundation right from you know, schoolboy cricket through into senior cricket, rep cricket. Um, that was a solid foundation that Mel provided. All those women, you mentioned Mel and you mentioned the other quickers, they must all be extremely strong because I guess when you really hit your strides as an international cricketer at the age where a lot of you guys were having kids, you know, mm. you've got the wife at home, you're in the West Indies or England or South Africa and, you know, they're getting up and feeding the child or when it's raining and the child wakes up or sick yeah. or having trouble at school. They must be extremely strong women, Gil. Uh, very, very tough ladies, very strong. Um, and just clearly very good at, at what they mm. what they do, whatever it is. Not not just being mums. Uh, Mel had two private um, practices. She's a dietitian, uh, so she had two really strong little businesses going um, up until the point when we had 
Harry, our first child, and and she, <clears throat> excuse me, she didn't hesitate at all in in deciding to let that go once uh, parenthood came along. Um, but yeah, very driven, uh, determined, and and clearly able to um, understand the sacrifices, or was prepared to to make the sacrifices that, that a lot of partners and, and family members make um, to to support me and, and for the other guys, um, support that, those guys in pursuit of what they were trying to achieve. So, And I think that can go across your whole family. Um, you know, it's, it's often sit back now and talk with my parents or my, my siblings and it's, it's a funny sort of dynamic and it, it always has been. Um, you know, we, none of us know life any other way than this is my first crack at being in a life that has profile. And it's their first go of having a sibling that's in profile. Mm. So I suppose to relate it, often the comment, you know, say my sister will say is, oh, yeah, found out that you were doing this or that through the press. Mm. Not, <laughs> not having a go at me, it's sort of like, oh, or might be on the project. And she, oh, click the TV on and there you were. <laughs> you should have told me. I went, and you sort of don't stop to think to alert everybody every time you're going to be doing something in the public space. But um, it's, it is an interesting dynamic, but... Yeah, good foundations. Where is fame at its height for you? I, I presume it's in India. Uh, yeah, as far as being noticed and notoriety and and the popularity of cricket. How, how yeah. noticed are we talking for for you in your heyday in India? Is it is <laughs> I, it crazy? Is it like the ads that you do, the old Castrol ads? That's and, probably the most accurate way is it? to describe it. <laughs> For, not just for me, but for anyone that's played uh, any level of cricket that's, well, once you've been on the TV over there, they seem to know. Uh, in fact, you probably don't even need to have been on TV for them to know, but uh, it is as close to Beatlemania as what a cricketer could possibly feel. Gillymania. I like it. It's, it's unreal. It's good for the ego. Yeah, I bet it is. <laughs> um, but it's, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the superstar, the Indian players, they don't live a normal, what we would term a normal existence they just cannot go out in public um and they are so the public are i mean you never fear for your safety it's you're just smothered in love and kindness and generosity um but they just can't contain their excitement it's almost like a um a childish immaturity to it it? but it's it's all also quite beautiful because i love cricket they love cricket it's a nice common bond um but yeah no no drama with invading your personal space or coming up when you're eating dinner or whatever. It's 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 fanaticism at its at its best, and it's um, as I say, it's all positive. What what I love is when you know when we're doing the big bash and there's any subcontinental fans anywhere that the first thing they come up to you in the hotel or at a restaurant or when we're up to the commentary box is Mr Gilly. I just love mm. that they call you Mr Gilly. <laughs> I just love Mr Gilly, Mr Gilly. Can I have yeah. a photo? And I love it. Or Mr Ricky. Yeah. Yep. For, for punter? Yep. Or uh, <laughs> I don't know what they call Flemo, but um, <laughs> no, no. Flemo used to terrorise them. They'd come up on tours and uh, it, it wore him down quicker than it wore most down. <laughs> right. I think most of us tried to be accepting and embrace it, but Flemo, he, yeah, short fuse. He'd end up getting their autograph book and <laughs> running off with it and hiding it. And uh, But, yep, yeah, fascinating country. Um Hard to describe without saying to someone, go there mm. and see it. And um, But I've found, what I've loved about it is the further you get off the beaten track, 
in India, the further you get into the, you know, um, and it's it's everywhere, the slum areas, the you know, away from, I suppose, the, the main streets, the high streets, so to speak, um, probably the less they do care about you. Uh, not not in a rude way, but they're just, they're just happy they're just getting on with their own life. Um, so you lose a little bit of that... Um, that being noticed, and it's quite it's quite nice. You get a chance to have a look around, and that you know, I used to do the security guards' heads in because I'd get up early in the morning and go for a run or a walk and slip the slip the security net, yeah. um, and that was intriguing. So, um, so you were an inquisitive traveller. I think there's the general public sort of has the Steve War. What we learned about Steve War that he, he wanted to immerse himself, yeah. and then there was the the Mark War, <laughs> just in the hotel room, bizarre cat. Yeah. Years. You, you were more of the the Steve War yeah. type. You like to get out and explore places where you were. Yeah, definitely, and and probably inspired and encouraged mm. by Steve War in in right. the way he went about it. So he was at the at the peak of that sort of. Uh, well, the Australian team didn't go to India for a long, long time, and then it was through that sort of generation where. You know, India started to come to the forefront and Australian cricket really re-engaged with them and we had a number of battles over the years. So we were there a lot and Steve loved it and embraced it and and influenced a lot of us to, to try and do the same. So, um, yeah, just to get up – well, get up anywhere in the morning almost as the sun comes up and see a city asleep and Mumbai – doesn't sleep much, but <laughs> it's always pretty <laughs> bustling. But there are a few hours in the morning and, you know, you go for a walk around there, you can see a lot about a, a city and then see how it slowly comes to life. And I remember once getting up and going for a walk, big walk around Taj Hotel in Mumbai down near the uh, gateway to India, um, Narriman Point, and we, um, I go for a big walk around and then I come back and do a couple of laps around the hotel and there's – as is the case over there, um, families asleep on the pavement. And there was a family of five, sort of mum and dad and then three kids coming down in descending order. And the youngest looked, I guess, about three, uh, did a lap. They were all asleep, came back, passed again. And, and the little one was awake, just sitting up looking around. And I had a um, set of swimming goggles that I was ca- carrying because I was going to go back into the pool and when I get there and have a stretch and a swim. And I stopped and, and this little girl was intrigued by these swimming goggles, a fluoro green sort of band around speedo ones. And, and so I stopped and let her have a play with them and she sort of didn't know what to do with them. And so I sort of showed motion <laughs> to put them on how you put goggles on and then gave them back. And she put them on and then I went to sort of grab them and she shied away and wouldn't give them back. So I thought, oh, what's a set of swimming goggles? And you have them and yeah. off I trotted, did another lap. And by the time I came back for the final lap, Mum, Dad, and the siblings are sitting there, looking. They're awake, looking at their little do- sister and daughter, sitting on the pavement with a set of fluorescent green goggles on. <laughs> they must have thought Martians had come down in the night. Like I just, it was such a cultural <laughs> um, blowout where they'd obviously seen nothing like it, and uh, I just sat and giggled at it, and yeah, they had no idea who I was or anything, but just kept walking. But um, it's, it's intriguing place that really always sort of lured me in. It's funny. I'm not sure she'd grow on to be a great swimmer. I remember we went there for the Com Games and I was covering the swimming at the pool there 
And I remember saying to the bloke, I was introduced to the, the venue manager and I said, you know, what would the future of this pool? It was an Indian chappy and he said, I'm not going to try and take him off, but he basically said to me, mate, in six months this place will be full of frogs. <laughs> because there'll be no swimming going on here. So I yeah. don't, I'm not sure if you'd aspire to inspire a future Olympian, Gil. <laughs> I haven't tried to track him down, but. Uh... That, I guess that was a scene in many ways. It was, you, you talked about the Aussies that always struggled there. And your old mate Ricky Ponting took the team over there. And then when it was mm. the, finally the big breakthrough and we beat India on the back of um, Matty Hayden's sweep shot in some ways, I guess, you were skipper. Yeah. Well, oh, punter missed out. <laughs> he came back for the fourth test and we lost it. Yeah, but you'd already sewn it. it up. By yeah, then. we already had it wrapped up. Um, yeah, I reckon. Well, that that victory that was, I think, thirty four years or so since Australia had been yep. successful in Test cricket there. Um, but our, our the beginnings of us winning that series in two thousand four started in two thousand one. I've got no doubt, and that was again Steve Wall led. Uh, and that was Matty Hayden's breakthrough. Yeah, truly as a international cricketer, where I don't know, five or six hundred runs in three tests on the back of a sweep shot. So, um, you know, Tugger, Tugger identified along with John Buchanan that you know as cricketers we were bloody good winches. Right, really knew how to winch. Um, <laughs> we could apportion, um, you know, the blame of a, of a loss to anyone else except for us. How'd that, go, how'd that go with Junior? Uh, yeah. Well, it was a no-whinge tour. Um, was he on the tour or he not? He was on the tour, the Junior, yeah. <laughs> no, he, he was. So, Did he stick with that theory? Uh, he tried his hardest. <laughs> he tried his hardest. But He's a great man. <laughs> He's a great man. But, uh, yeah, but Tugger just sort of <clears throat> gave us this quote that I, I refer to a lot about, attitudes are contagious, is yours worth catching? Right. And that was sort of the catch guy that I remember. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Excuse me, but um, yeah, it's about embracing, as you say, immerse yourself in the in the challenge and the tour rather than try to rebel against it. And everyone had their different levels of engagement, but um, but we geez, we went awfully close for winning that one, but we missed out in probably probably the best series of cricket. It was Laxman um, and Dravid, Laxman and Dravid, yeah, the big follow on test up in. Calcutta. It was funny as, 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 a, as a person I can remember watching, I remember where I was living and I didn't have pay TV so I was watching in a pub across the road yeah. every afternoon um, and it was almost a series that you didn't mind. I'd love to see Australia win yeah. but as an outside influence, it was it was just such good cricket every amazing, day that if the Indians, they, when they won, you're like, yep, well, fair enough, you know. Well, that, that, that. well they'd produce their best. The two, the two best series that I reckon I played in was we lost both of them. Yeah. Uh, that one. <clears throat> and uh, 2005 mm. Ashes, and I reckon, you know, hats off to the opposition. They produced some of the most extraordinary cricket ever um, to beat us, so that's a nice compliment to us and well done to them. Uh, but, yeah, but I reckon we learned a lot from 01, and although Steve Waugh wasn't there, Junior wasn't there by 2004, but, um, yeah, we went over there and, and you yeah, know, the batting and, and the bowling, and we changed our whole mindset. We changed... We went from being ultra-aggressive Aussies, positive field settings to saying, right, we need to go negative to be positive. Um, so that, and that wasn't just because I was captain. That was a real collective thought change from Buchanan. Punter was captain by then. Warney, all the bowlers had to get over. Oh, not that they had the ego, but had to get over the, the, the vision of running in and seeing one slip and a deep point you know, trying to bowl out swing and stuff like that. So it was just defend, keep yourself in the game, um, 
test, maybe even play to their strengths, but but plug the gaps there so they're not getting the benefit and, and grind them down and did it beautifully. And the guys batted well. Marto, um, Buff was brilliant. Would you have liked to say there was a world of which there was no <coughs> Ricky Ponting? Would you have liked to be m- more capped as an Australian test captain or did you have enough going on being a wicketkeeper and the gun bat that you were? Yeah. N- no, I had no aspiration right. to be to be full-time captain. Because you didn't like it? Because you didn't think you were good at it? Because oh, you had too much else on your plate? Yeah, you're captain, like, probably like most guys that play for Australia, you you're probably captain most of your junior cricket yeah. just because you're, the best you're one of the better players there and that mm. seems to be the way in junior cricket. Um, but And I enjoyed that. I, I, I always enjoyed leadership responsibility, but I don't think that I was uh, – I think I pretty quickly realised I, I didn't – one, I didn't think about the game in, in enough detail as what captains need to and, and follow – in a sort of analytical sense to, to pick up learnings and, and, you know, in memory for later use later on. Um, yeah, so it was, so as maybe as a result of that, I didn't think tactically I was, I was sort of fantastic by comparison to, to others. But I, I felt like I had inputs and, and good ideas at times, but, but then also I had enough, just enough going on. Yeah, and I, I, I don't think you can pigeonhole keepers to not be able to captain, but... But for me, there was just there was enough going on, and then within two years of me starting my test career, we had our first child, and that then, well, I mean that was effectively the beginning of the end of my career. I don't I want to play for another seven years, but yeah. immediately that changes the whole dynamic and and what things you're focusing on. So no, I never I never coveted the captaincy and and fully supported. You know, Steve, and then and then punter. You talked about you didn't think about the game enough. Again, from the outside looking in, and it, it, uh, in my time watching cricket, Gil, there's there's been two things that if it's happening when I'm watching, I can't go and do something else. And it was when Warning was bowling mm. or when you were batting, because I, I personally found them both captivating. And you said you didn't think about um, the game as much as maybe some of your captains did. Did you think about your batting or? Was it when you batted? It was like when Junior was batting. It looked free and easy. It looked mm. like you just rolled out. You might have had a couple of beers the night before. Had a quick hit the nets and went out there and just went whack. <laughs> was it like that or not? Oh no, I trained and prepared. Obviously, you were. But um, yeah, I mean to break down my training, I probably it was probably an eighty twenty split keeping versus batting. I, I had to keep uh, practice my keeping. Eighty percent keeping. I reckon eighty percent of my time was focused on that and. Probably twenty cent. Jeez, imagine if you given the gloves away, you could have been Bradman. <laughs> well, I don't know, if I gave the gloves away, which I nearly did in nineteen ninety two, Rod Rod Marsh thankfully taught me out of it. Um, I probably wouldn't have got anywhere near Shield cricket regularity, let alone Test cricket. What, you wanted to concentrate on your batting, or oh, I thought about it. I was in New South Wales, and I Phil Emery was the keeper, batsman, captain, doing a great job, and that's when I eventually decided to move to WA but I, I first of all thought I've played 10 games for New South Wales as a batsman maybe I should flick keeping all together and really give this a crack but I, I would have only felt half there I just wanted to keep um, and Rod encouraged me to stick with it and look somewhere else so that was good advice um, so yeah training so I just batting came more naturally I could. I knew that straight away. I had to work harder at my keeping, so that's why I trained so much more. Um, 
But, uh, yeah. I, it looks so much I fun, Gil. Yeah, it was fun. That was the legacy of my old man. Uh, Dad used to just say, hit the ball, you know. He'd train and we'd, I'd, I'd nag him, throw more balls. You know, Mum, we had a ball machine in the back. And Mum, feed some balls through him. Did you always smash him? Did you always... Smash oh, I probably always went after it a bit. Right. Yeah, but I reckon Dad gave me a decent enough technique foundation of of defence. But then he always finished with say, "Go after, like ha- hit the ball, mm. just go after it and hit the ball." So, yeah, I remember in an under seventeen carnival, they picked an Australian squad after it, and I got selected. And we didn't play anyone; we just went to a camp in Adelaide, and one of the coaches assessed. All my innings in that carnival, and in one innings I got twenty four, and I hit six fours, and <laughs> he hopped into me about strike <laughs> rotation. And I, I sort of scratched my head, thinking, "No, mate, I was on fire." <laughs> but um, but it's yeah, all those little learnings along the way. But uh, uh, it was yeah, I, I probably I think what a lot of people have commented to me in my autobiography when I finished was how much self doubt I really had. But something, um, a line that Peter Roebuck, Peter Roebuck wrote, um, who I thought was a tremendous writer on mm. the game, um, was that cricketers had to wear a, or wore a cape of bravado. So, you know, it's, it's, it's the good ones that can have that cape wrapped around them and conceal whatever is going on underneath, whether it's positive or negative or whatever. And, and I could really relate to that because I, I had, yeah, I wasn't sort of nervous to the point of not wanting to go out there, but I, I was very uncertain and, and, and had nerves. And um, so probably that went against the way it looked. What like were you uncertain time. about? Um, well, I think the longer it went on, the more uncertainty came in. I think when I first got in there, it was just how good's this. And mm. Steve War gave me a bit of a license at the top of the one day team, and so that was. Uh, and prior to that, Tom Moody in the West, you know, the Wayne Clark, they gave me a lot of support. And you know, batting at seven was sort of I've always sort of felt like I could possibly have been a top order batsman, but batting at seven and keeping meant that. Yeah, maybe I wasn't expected to score runs, so all, I could relax. Care, but no responsibility. Yeah, but the, the longer you go and succeed and get set standards that others expect you to live up, and you yourself expect to live up to, you start to bring in the opportunity for, for failure. And it was only the longer my career went on, the more negative-minded I got, and to the point where, you know, when Freddie Flintoff in 2005 and all the bowls started having this plan, go around the wicket, and I started to. There was a few times where I sat down and thought, "Have I have I asked this the whole way here?" And now that I'm getting found out, have I just been a, a really fluky batsman? Oh, oh, fluky for seventy tests, <laughs> averaging <laughs> no, fifty. Mate. mate, the mind does some funny things at some stage. Does it was, really? Yeah, I was. Uh, yeah, I was sitting there thinking, "Jesus," and self doubt. That's when, as you say, it seemed a bit weird. And going back to Way back to your question about did I think about my batting much? I didn't really. And when it got to that point, I didn't don't know that I wanted to because I was a bit scared of what I might see. And and you know, no, no, I'll be right, I'll be right. You know, just keep come on, just back yourself. And I'd get out, and then hang on a minute, maybe I need to, you know, analyze this technique, analyze this, that. And it was a 
it was sort of I thought, oh, no, it's probably easy just to give up. So that was around the 70 test mark and I was going to give up. I, after uh, getting a duck in the ashes in Perth in 2006, I went home and told Mel that I'm out after this game, I'm retiring. And she sort of smacked me around the head a bit and said, no, you're just whinging because you've got a duck. But, but we had a good, honest chat uh, and I played on and ended up playing another 18 months and another 20 or 30 tests. So I'm glad we had that chat. But it was amazing. It was a bit of a contradiction. The more experienced I got, the more nervous and uncertain I got. What, what did Freddie do in 2005? It was, you know, even again from the outside, oh, Gilly's coming in, we'll be right, he'll make 40 or 50. Oh, he's gone. Mm. Oh, he's gone. It was for, for us because we had that expectation yeah. you're talking about. Oh, yeah. he'll come turn it around yeah. for us and it'll be all right. He'll and get so, 60 off 70 and off we go. That's what I felt too. Yeah. I'll just, I, what did he do? Well, talk to him about it and I got him to write a passage for a book for me. And well, he talks about he did, they didn't even said, mean it. He didn't mean it. He just went around the wicket one day just to try, purely to try something different. And I think the foot marks were a bit nagging on the over the wicket side. So, and he knocked me over, <clears throat> knocked me over at Lords in you know, a one day, and he he said he actually thought, oh, that's all right, we'll try that again. So, but here was I. By the time the test came around, I in my mind it felt like the first time an opposition had really planned something totally different to me and then and then they executed the plan really well and they had you know different field settings deep almost backward point catching and anyway it was clearly they just got inside my mind and are they talking to you when you're out there we're going to get you again the same not a lot not a lot no and that that probably annoyed me but I, i was never put off by sledging but i never had it or copped a huge amount through my career um because you're so nice, Gil. But that was, oh, that was almost – I was hoping that they'd come at me, but it was almost they were just so – I was – my perception was that they were so in control of what they were doing, they didn't even need to sledge me. They just knew they had this calculated plan and, and I'll self-implode, which pretty much I did. It's, it's a fine line. I, I did all right in the one days, the mm. one day series first, and I ended up getting 100 in the in the final game. and So I went into the test pretty confident. We – Lords, I don't know, I think I got 20-odd, you know, flashing outside off, cutting, smacked a few cuts and then nicked one. And then he bowled me, I think, around the wicket in the second innings and that's where it really, <clears throat> I thought, oh dear, here we go. But then we went to Edgbaston, famous test obviously, but in the first innings I was 49 not out and I thought I was, and I was hitting them really well and I thought, oh, nah, I'm good, business as usual. And then the last three or four wickets fell like bang, bang, bang. And so I was 49 not out at the end of the innings. And I thought, oh, bugger. And then from that moment on, I barely looked like getting a 10, let alone getting a decent score. And my, my mind was cooked. So, um, so in, what did they do? I think it was the first time I felt truly under siege from an opponent. And they... Um, yeah, it just got inside my mind and I was gone. So when you talk about got inside your mind, you were gone, life on tour, you, uh, you're away from your friends, you're away from your family, and it would have been one of the rare times when A, the team wasn't winning and yep. B, you weren't succeeding. What happens when you get back to your hotel room at night? Like, are, are you a bloke that it just, well, you're shaking your head, so it was obviously not fun. <laughs> no, I was, and I was trying to do, we had... Annie, our second child. So we had Harry and Annie at that stage. Yep. Annie, Annie had a first birthday in Nottingham, actually. Um, 
So, so you're trying to live two lives. Trying to, I was trying to be, mate, I was trying to be a, a vice captain, a batsman, a keeper, a husband and a father, and I was doing a pretty shit job at all of them, yeah, I realised okay. by the end of it. Um, culminating in Manchester, which was, what, the third test. That that That's my worst memory for me in test cricket is that test and just that period. Um, worst test match in my career. You know, and that's saying something given in Calcutta in 2001. Mm-hmm. I got a king pair and basically squatted up and down two and a half thousand times in between those two deliveries <laughs> and watched VVS Laxman's backside as he compiled in a record In 42 score. degrees. So um, that was a positive experience. <laughs> so that tells you how well I was going in, in Manchester. In flat in Manchester. But, um, but I was dropping catches and, and just fumbling and batting and walked out there. I thought, oh, this is – I might as well not even bat because – Freddie's coming on again and Simon Jones was hooping him around the corner. You that cooked him. I was not even bad. I was cooked. Wow. And not only that, best laid plans pre-tour, I thought, well, I'm not liking this long periods of time away from Mel and the kids and it's and it's a bad tour, England, if you've got family because the hotel rooms are tiny and they don't fit much more than your cricket bag and, and maybe your wife. They don't do there, hotels or restaurants well, no. do they, in the UK? <laughs> it's a tough or one. Or showers. So I thought I'd be clever and, and prepared and, and looked into some self-contained um, accommodation close to the team hotel um, and Mel and the kids could park there and I'd, I'd sort of get to the hotel each morning, go to and from the ground on the bus with the players so I'm not missing out on anything at... But as soon as the bus gets back to the hotel, everyone wanders up to their rooms as normal. I would sort of skulk off around the corner and go to my little mm. uh, place pad where the family were. And um, and I, I reckon in hindsight, I, I knew then I felt like I was not being part of the team and, and I tried to sort of keep it quiet, but the, the boys started to know and I don't think they were put out by it. I don't think they could understand the theory, but it just – it was wrong. And – there was one night there where I was walking from the hotel in Manchester down to this little apartment and it was past these bars and restaurants and, yeah, you got your team gear on and I just got hammered by the all the blokes in the pubs all the way down there, just, you know, England, this ascendancy was out of control and the momentum um, and they just were bagging me out. <laughs> I, dro- I think I dropped Michael Vaughan on about 10 and he got 170 and... Um, and I walked in there and <laughs> I'm standing there and Mel's looking at me with this bandage on her hand. She'd cut, she'd trying to do some washing up and then the glass would smash and she'd severed a big part of her hand. So she'd been to a, to a doctor to get her hand fixed up and it was just like, oh, this is all wrong. This is, this is terrible. And as it turned out, she, we finally had the big conversation we need to have. I was actually probably thinking probably best if they went home because... They're not having much fun. There's not a lot of parks around Manchester where the kids can go and have a swing and kick the footy around. Yeah. It's all cement jungle there and Mel was – but I didn't want to say go home and be rude and Mel was only staying there because she thought I needed support but she actually wanted to go home. So finally over a glass of wine it was real beauty. <laughs> she was packing her bags, getting ready to fly home and and I, um, you know, I was able to just focus on the cricket a bit at the end but, um, yeah – Best best intentions, 
but I wasn't doing a very good job at any of it. You're listening to Adam Gilchrist on the Howie Game. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Give us a like. Share the love. Tell your friends. Tell your mum. Tell your dad. Tell your grandma. So more people can hear the Howie Games. More of Gilly now. I, I don't sort of want to talk about too much cricket, and we shouldn't be talking about one bad series when you had so many positive ones. If there's, if there's one innings I, I want to ask you about before we sort of probably move off cricket at some point, um, the World Cup final, and you, you had some great success. Um, I saw you guys lose against Pakistan in that 99 series and then you had to win seven on the trot. Mm. I went with uh, your great mate, Lukey Gillian, Lukey oh, yeah. Sparrow, who followed Sparrow. the cricketers around. I thought, oh, <laughs> you cooked here and you went on and won that World Cup and won the next one. And Ricky made all those runs. And then it was yeah. it was Sri Lanka in the West Indies. Yeah, um, yeah and, there, and there's a story goes around. I don't even know if it's true. I was asking someone about this the other day that you were opening and maybe Chaminda Vass was bowling and I don't think you smacked the first ball as in got any runs, but you might have just middled one and there, there was talk that the Sri Lankans were saying, is this a true story? Oh, apparently, I didn't hear it, but Murley, it was at mid-off, so Varsi came in and sort of pitched one up as he did, trying to get it to swing and I sort of hit it a really firm sort of off drive, didn't absolutely hop into it, but it flew off the middle of the bat and... I think I think it was Murley sort of just picked the ball up. It flew down to him on the ground. He's picked it up and, and said something along the lines, oh, no, we're about to get gillied or mm. or this doesn't look good. That's how the story's um, been told to yeah, me. That so, after the first ball, the World Cup final, the yeah. face, they were like, oh, we're so, going to get smoked here. <laughs> so I didn't hear that, obviously, at the time. But, um, yeah, it was just one of those rare perfect days really tell me what's a perfect day like at the top well, the world cup final that's it yeah. that's as big as it gets mate yep well i'd had a pretty steady tournament not not a shocker but i hadn't might, might have only got 150 in the tournament you know that's in about 10 games so that's not good enough um so i was pretty keen to do well in that one um but i, I don't know I, I think for me what made it it was a day there's rain around in the morning, so it was a delayed start. So, um, you know, we warm up and then come back in and have to sit for a while. And then there was a toss and we win the toss and bat, but then it rained again, so more delay. So I ended up going out in the gym out the back of the change rooms and just trying to lie down to save a bit of energy and ended up falling asleep and being woken up, told the umpires that, sort of 10 minutes away from heading out. So In the World Cup final, you fell asleep before? Yeah, yeah. and I guess in with... The way I'm a, I don't sit and last thing I need is a lot of preparation time to sit and have to think about it. So that's what I loved about opening in in short version cricket. You just you're into it. Um, so that probably played in my favour all that those delays. Um, so before I knew it, I was out there and facing the first ball and you know, plum wicket, just a and and then yeah, just that first ball right out of the middle and. I don't know why it happens, but some days I don't know whether it's <clears throat> excuse me your your personal execution's great or whether some days it feels like the bowl is bowled to exactly where you want it. Is that the zone that yeah, athletes I, talk about? I suppose it. I guess it must be, and it's hard to replicate. Cool though. Oh, mate, <laughs> nice to be in it in a World Cup final. Unreal. Yeah. Do you know what's happening at the time? Do you know? Wow, I'm I'm almost invincible. Or you think the you, next ball could you, still get me? Well, that's where you get. Pulled back a bit by the, the, you know, balanced up by the, the little man on one shoulder going, oh, here we go. <laughs> Fill your boots, girl. Fill them back. Just keep going, son. And then the <laughs> other one sort of going, oh, no, don't don't blow it now. Don't don't blow it. So that's the 
that's the balancing up you need right through your career, isn't it? And that's risk reward. Haydos was unreal. Junior was great. Junior batting with him, he was he was more just just take your time, you know, get yourself. Don't worry about the scoreboard. But Haydos was just oh come on, yeah, just take it down. So he was oozing confidence. Um, yeah, but was that the famous squash ball? Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, so I had the squash ball in. That was the biggest dilemma I had that day is whether to put the squash ball in or so not. So what was the squash ball? Squash ball, a, a basic common squash ball. Yep. Um, and obviously, you know, you, you squeeze a squash ball and it, it compresses and then it pops back out. Basically a batting coach without boring any <laughs> listener out there with technical detail, but the, a batting the, coach. The listeners to the Howie games don't get bored. Yeah. <laughs> They're being entertained by what you're there. They want to know about the squash ball. Well, a batting coach felt that my bottom hand, if I gripped it too much with, you know, with basically with all my fingers and my whole hand, I would lose the shape of my shot. I, I needed to be more dominant with my top hand, which is my right hand. Um, so in training for 10 years, Bob Muleman, a guy who played a lot of WA cricket, um, his father played a test for Australia. His sons have played shield cricket for WA. Um he got me to put a squash ball in my glove on my bottom hand, basically to work as resistance. So really my thumb and forefinger were the two hands and my middle finger just were on the bat handle, but the other two, sort of the ring finger and, and small pinky finger, were off the off the grip. Okay. So that meant that my top hand could dominate more and control the stroke. And, and, and you batted like that in the nets? In the, in the nets on ball machine. And it was like I'd go away play, tour, come back, and it was like a grease and oil change. You'd go into the nets with Bob when you're home and he'd just work you over, sharpen you up, and you'd come out technically feeling good. And then slowly, <laughs> the longer you're away, more bad habits would creep in, you'd come back and get serviced. But just before I went away to that tournament, he said, mate, the conditions in the West Indies, it's going to be sort of low and slowish. I reckon you should use the squash ball in your glove. And... Uh, I thought, oh, it's pretty uncomfortable, but but I suppose best described as a bit like a pebble in your shoe. Like you can, it's annoying, but you can still run, you can still walk, you can function. Um, that's what it felt like in the glove. But I used it through the whole tournament. Didn't tell anyone, and had a pretty steady tournament. And then after I woke up on the morning of the World Cup from out the back in the in the um, gym. That was my biggest dilemma. Am I going with it or not? Am I going with it or not? I've used it at this point in the tournament. It hasn't served me that well. Ah, bugger it. And I stuffed it in there and walked out there. And, uh, and boys it just didn't know. felt perfect. No, boys didn't know. And that was only, only dawned on me when I was in the 90s that Bob's last comment were, was um, when you get 100 in the World Cup final, you've got to prove to me that it's in there. So I've sort of smacked this one over the top for 40 out of 100 and then sort of thought, hang on, Bob, Bob. So I'm holding the palm of my hand up to the camera and everyone's going, what what's, he doing? what's he doing? But, um, yeah, so that that's that's the theory behind it. So you made a 149, 149 mm. off 120-odd balls. That was your – well, you would have won balls, your – 104 balls, Sorry, <laughs> yeah. sorry, sorry. I'm 104 <laughs> balls. I threw a few too many in there. Yeah. Um, so it would have been your third World Cup final you'd won? Yep. Um, yep. In the dark. 
Yeah. That's my memories of it. That they, was unbelievable. Well, they showed it on the telly and they kept talking about how dark it was. But as you know now, being a, a Logie Award-winning mm. uh, television guru, <laughs> that they can really tweak the cameras up with the game, doesn't it? Yep. And at one point they said, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll turn the game off and we'll show you what it's actually like here. Yeah. And it was bloody dark, oh, guru. It was, it was real dark. <laughs> and that was finished a, and it didn't finish. And well, and then, I mean, history tells you that, the, they called it off. They said, right, we've got to go off a bad light. And we thought, well, they've, we've bowled, you know, 30-odd or 20-odd overs, whatever. We'd bowled enough overs to constitute a match. You were celebrating. Oh, we lost the plot. We yeah. won the World Cup. Yeah. And then they, they come in and say, no, 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 we've got to come back tomorrow. So what does Rick say at that stage as the hey, captain? You're kidding me. <laughs> Did he have his hands? Oh, up yeah, his Captain hips? Grumpy turned up there. But, his hips? No, he, he was – come back um, the next day to finish it. They said – the rules of this tournament are that, you know, we have rain days or a spare day and, and we can come back and finish this game. And, I mean, we, we were all over them. They weren't, they weren't going to get there from there. And, no. What were they, seven or eight down? And thankfully, basically we all stood around out in the ground wondering what's going on and then some common sense came into it. Um, I think Jay Wardner was Captain Mahela for Sri Lanka and he – basically got the message out to Chaminda Vas, who was batting and said there was three more overs needed to be for it to not have to come back the next day. So they just said, look, if you if you bowl, you don't try and kill us. So they were the three uh, overs in the dark. Yeah, and Andrew Simons and I think maybe Hoggy, which I, I reckon there might have been ten buyers because I couldn't see the ball. <laughs> I just sort of turned my head and hoping it didn't hit me, but... But uh, so it was a bit farcical. But then again, we got to celebrate Twice. two World Cups. That's it. You did. <laughs> yeah. You did. You did. And we celebrated long and hard. I can still recall, and we've discussed this. I can still recall shots of maybe you and Roy, maybe Punter, the morning after oh, doing yeah. the old press conference on the balcony with <laughs> Australian flags draped around you and Simo just in his box jocks. Yeah, just in his your arms. eyes hanging out of your head, and you can yeah. see these blokes are trying to say the right thing. And you know, there's a lot of children watching, and you know, <laughs> they're heroes to people. But you can see what these boys have been up to. Yeah, yeah, we we, we did celebrate well that group. You certainly didn't didn't. Uh, Cut short any celebrations, well, and, and and that was that was we we were stuck there. If that if that was on a Sunday, well, our flight out wasn't until Tuesday, so right. <laughs> we we had a chance to give it a good nudge. Was that, was that the tour at the start of the tour? And you've told me this story. I think it was this that tour. Maybe Rick told me this story. Um, where you started celebrating at the start of the tour <laughs> before, before you actually started playing, you maybe even oh, had a baby, is, and this, this is, is this true? growing in well, this legend is, status. Well, is, it's, it's legendary within the Australian cricket fraternity. <laughs> it's not. I think Matty Hayden revealed it. Oh, it around the Hayden. last year's World Cup in some was memoirs it, from previous was it Matty tournaments? Hayden? Right. Uh, yeah, I was late there because we had Archie. Uh, Archie was born in in '07, um, so I was. I didn't miss any of the World Cup games. I missed a couple of warm-up games uh, and got there to the little island of St. Vincent. And to be honest, I you know flew long way around to the West Indies from Perth and eventually got there, left left home with a bit of a heavy heart, having welcomed in another little mm. boy, but sort of, sort of left thinking, oh, right, okay, got to go and get to work now. But, but by the time I'd landed in St. Vincent after, you know, sort of going via... London, New York, down to Miami, <laughs> then across to this little island, and then uh, the I think the boys 
were at a function when I arrived, so there was sort of known in the hotel, pretty basic little hotel, and I, I went down and sat on the beach and uh, <laughs> thought I'd have as many uh, folk do or men do occasionally when they have a baby, just have a big cigar just to celebrate the arrival of young Archie. A big Cuban. Had a big Cuban down there on the beach and uh, you, sat there in, in a, a quiet ale and, um, and I think the reality of how much I was not wanting to be there really kicked in and right. sort of started to wrestle with it a bit and um, and I found that <laughs> the easiest way through was to grab a teammate each night and sit down and just just get chatting with them and maybe by talking a few too many cigars and okay, so clearly, as legend would have it, a few too many ales and um, <laughs> that was – I was self-medicating probably just mm. to ease my way through it and mm. – might have got carried away a bit. Mind you, I had a few partners in crime. I was, I was never sort of lonely no, in that regard. I but, wouldn't have thought so. Um, but, yeah, the captain and the coach did have to, <laughs> have to suggest that maybe it was time to cool my jets a bit and focus on the cricket. So, And how did you respond to that? I think that's the legendary part of the story, <laughs> whether it's true or not. I just said, that's fine. Could I possibly just have one last little blow? <laughs> 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 Which they agreed to and... All's good. That's good captaincy. It's good leadership. That's good good leadership. I like, know your players. <laughs> well, know your players. I, I keep saying I want to move away from cricket, but you know me, I'm a, a, a cricket <laughs> nuffy um, and we know that. Uh, um, that there's, there's so many things to talk about in cricket, but just to sort of generally wind up this cricket chat, you, um, again, I was talking about watching you and Warney, I guess you're the two players in this generation that, have changed the game. Shane changed league spin bowling, and you've changed it now because the wicket keepers are expected to bat um, and bat well, and probably bat aggressively. But you played in a team guild that is arguably one of the greatest teams has ever been. You know, mm. Everyone talks about it. It'd be great to see the the Aussies in their heyday against the West Indies in their yeah. heyday with Viv and Clive and, and and the big quick bowlers. Just tell me. Just tell me a few things about each of these different blokes, what they were like to play cricket with. We'll sort of keep it shortish, but we, I guess you had Langer and Hayden at the top of the order. You were saying Hayden was a man that would just say, go, 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 wasn't yeah. he? Yep. Yeah. Oh, and they were – clearly everyone could see the, the bromance they were having. Mm. They were just so tight. And that was – that in itself was a comforting feeling, knowing your, your opening partnership, which is just a frightfully tough job, um, so tight tightly bound together and so com- completely um, in love yeah in love and <laughs> and determined to do the best thing for the team but um yeah they were, they were, i mean hados right, intimidating man to walk out to bat with huge because of the f- sh- Just sheer size size and his shoulders and the strut and, and he walked down and, the wicket yeah he squat down he took Ten minutes to face the ball, which just pissed the opposition off no right. end. But and he knew it eventually, and um, you know. And then he, and if he got runs, he'd start doing the the cross, you know, the religious cross. Mm. Which it's funny. Um, Andy Bickle once asked him. Um, he noticed that Hados never does that in Shield cricket, and he asked, "Doesn't God watch Shield cricket?" <laughs> <laughs> so the, the boys reckon he was only doing it for the cameras. But <laughs> punter, punter, but, uh, punter would come in at three. Um, Ponting at three. Well, uh, that speaks for itself. Yeah, highest run scorer for us. And I and I reckon he played the wrong sport. <laughs> he should have been a golf. golfer. But, golf. Um, so that shows you how good his golf is. But no, he was. Um, when he first when he first came into ten, 
when we started doing the Big Bash, yeah. I just remember we were – I had to sit down with him and Flem and I'd met him 10 minutes prior and <laughs> do a practice commentary. We, you know, we in had that some little highlights studio. in that little studio. <laughs> and, um, you know, through this job you get to meet some wonderful people and people you look up to and you, you, you get used to it. Yeah. I couldn't get used to sitting next to Ricky Ponty <laughs> because, he, you know, he takes a bit of getting to know. Yeah. Once you know yeah. him, the funniest man you'll ever meet, but he takes a bit of getting yeah. to know. He's that yeah. – He's an imposing He's got little a character, isn't he? Out of shell. He has. Yeah. He has. Boy from Melbourne. Well, we were all scared of him so, at ten. Yeah. Oh well. The, the, I suppose the good thing is, I first met him when he was seventeen or sixteen. In fact, probably. Geez, um, he would have been a little loose cannon. Oh then. well, he was. He was a bit. He had that hard Did shell he? then, but but because I was a bit older than him and captain on a, a AIS a cricket academy tour of to the. To um, South Africa, so I guess I've always felt like I've, I've, you know, got to know him at a really early age, and he very quickly sort of overtook me and the rest of that group, and suddenly was playing Test cricket and that. But I've always got on well with him and knew his sense of humour because he was he was a little, he's a bloody prankster, like he up to no good all the time. So, um, but still, I can observe others around him, and when he meets new people. Um, the conversation doesn't flow that freely and no. he's pretty guarded with it. And well, he's told me before at functions he used to send you in because you'd be the you'd be the grease and oil and lubricant <laughs> yeah. man that would get everyone talking and, and he'd sit back. Yeah. But yeah. I, I find when you're in conversation with Ricky Ponting, you're in a – you're in a glow because you're talking to Ricky Ponting. Yeah. Like if you get a text message from Ricky Ponting. Yeah, don't, I still feel the same way, mate. <laughs> mate I'm, I want to walk same. down the street so I can imagine. I got a text from Ricky Ponting. <laughs> got a text from Ricky Ponting. Yeah. And it's mainly because the little prick never responds to anything. He's not good on it. He's not good. He's not good. But, so, uh, but no, it, it, yeah, there's an uh, an aura. That it, you know, I think everyone is in awe of him a yeah. little bit and I, I still feel a bit the same way and I've been – Great mate with him for you know twenty years, but um, yeah, he's uh, but and th- hasn't that been one of the beauties of what we've been lucky to do at, with the Big Bash is let the public see his personality. My favourite part of the Big yeah. Bash is that yeah. Yeah. people uh, coming and saying, "Wow, he's a funny bloke, or he's yeah. a good bloke, or he's interesting, a nice bloke. like funny, yeah. caring, yeah, you know, warm-hearted, and, yeah." So that's that's been the yeah, I agree, the highlight of all of it. Number four in, in that team would that be Michael Clark? Oh, well, it depends whether – it depends what which, year and which era. So era. Mark War or Michael Clark. Yeah. Um, and, well, well, you know, and, and Pup, all he wanted to do was be Mark War. So, right. And he eventually got there batting at, at that number four spot. Why but, is he um, divisive, Gil? And I, I don't really know him, but every time I've dealt with him, he seems like a lovely chap. Yeah, I, I just wonder whether he's the first <clears> – <throat> If he was sort of the the first, the breakthrough of of the new era of mm. cricketers that were probably, for want of a better term, manufactured cricketers, um, image or wise, you mean? Yeah, a, a bit of everything, I yeah, suppose. Well, actually, I, I'm sure he played cricket because he loved cricket, but he he, I, I think I'm right in saying he went specifically to Westfield Sports High School in Sydney because that had a cricket program. So, you know, you're starting to really. You know, I I just played cricket, got told we went okay at it, so you go and try out for that team. Oh, okay, and you try it. And, and you just sort of it, – it flows on from there. I don't remember as a kid saying, I genuinely am going to try and make a, a living out of this game. Right. I want to play. I want to play as 
good as I can and as high level as I possibly can. I had the dreams of playing for Australia, but it wasn't a conscious, that's my career path. I always thought I was going to need a uni degree or have a – and I did have part-time jobs to help get me to training and all that. Whereas I think Putt was the first of that what's now very common almost everywhere. The players are, yep, I'm targeting cricket as a legitimate career path right from through school on – channeling in that way so that whether that's manufactured or or pre-planned or pre-ordained or whatever um and then yeah he was a as he says he's a a bogan from western suburbs of sydney but a bit of a contradiction he loved fast cars you know expensive cars he has you know fine taste in fashion and and women interest in it and and you know he mixes socializes in circles that aren't that common with the you know the areas that he grew up. So, mm. but he loves out there. I, I I know he's a he's a genuine character in that regard, and you know he loves his West Tigers and uh, loves going back and seeing Nan and Pa and and his dad and you know had health issues with his old man, but and his mum. But um, yeah, I just think the public didn't quite grasp what if was he angling one way. What's natural to him. And maybe he and needs maybe the big was, bash treatment. Maybe he needs a season in the big bash box so everyone comes away and sees the real Michael Clark. Perhaps. Well, I think they're going to hear from him a lot more and through career commentary. Yeah. I suppose he's going to be part of the nine set yeah. up. He's already shown glimpses of that already. And he's fantastic at it. Yeah. I oh, he, well, see, he's a he's a, a terrific tactician in in the game, and and I think he um, and he'll be able to articulate it really well also. So I hope for his sake that the public do get a chance yeah. to. To really understand his his personality and his mindset and the and the, you know, the quality of person he is. So it's either Clark or Mark wore it for yep. Mark was just one of the the, the, the just classic. one of the most beauty. classic people you'd ever meet, yeah. wouldn't you? Yeah. Is, um, <laughs> was was uh, what was he like out in he, the middle? You know, you know what you're saying about punter about the way you you get a buzz out of being around. I still like junior was my, when I was 17, I went to England on a cricket scholarship. So I did my HSC, my my leaving certificate by correspondence from, from England, uh, five months over there playing, eat, sleep, you know, live cricket, um, horribly homesick on the other side of the world, but, but great experience by the end of it. Didn't want to come home. So that's 1989. But one thing I did do while I was away other than put on about 30 kilograms <laughs> eating Donna kebabs after every game of cricket and learning to drink pints at, pints at the age of 17, um, was I was determined to grow a mullet like Junior's. Really? Because he was playing. Well, the Essex mullet? He was Essex that year when he, you know, some say he should have been on the Ashes tour. Yeah. That dominant Ashes tour and he had the best mullet. And Mel, who I was, had started dating at that stage, um, she loved him. And I idolised him and I just thought, what a chance. I came home with, as I say, 30 kegs on extra and the massive mullet went all curly at the back and uh, I just wanted to be like him. So like like what you say about punter, once I eventually got in and I didn't play with him for New South Wales because I only ever played when those blokes were away, but then got picked for Australia and next minute I'm open the batting with him, I just – I was couldn't believe it. Was it? And I, st- and I still get a giggle now. Isn't that I still fantastic? think, Mark Wall, <laughs> you beauty. <laughs> but up until the point where he said to me, when I was playing for Australia, he said, one day we're sitting around and goes, Gilly, you can't possibly 
possibly have been trying when you played for New South Wales? He said, you're that bad. <laughs> he said, how, how are you this good for Australia? <laughs> Only Junior could say that, but... Yeah, so Junior there, Tugger five, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just I, I was, you know, he's courted a bit of controversy lately from various opinions of, of teammates, but I was very much a, a follower of Tugger. I related to everything he did and the way he went about it and um, just and he backed me in so uh, and complimented that batting lineup. So so brilliantly, just his stubbornness and determination and um, ability to stick around in a, in the heat of battle. I, growing up, my first sporting idol was Alan Border, mm. um, and then I think I sort of followed. You know, you always keep an eye on one player in a team. Then it was Steve War. It was just yeah. wherever you were around the world. It was how many did Steve War make? You know, it, it, he he seemed to personify the I don't know. The baggy green. Dean Jones was talking to me about how special the baggy green was the yeah. other day when we were doing uh, yeah. Howie games with Dino. Um, and that's what it seemed to be what Steve Waugh was all about. Yeah. Again, from the outside looking in, because he wasn't a man that was that warm or overflowing in the media. You weren't finding no. out a great deal about him. In fact, yeah. the, the old school journos say he was, he was pretty hard work, Steve yeah. Waugh. Yeah, he looked like that. But just remember those images of him when he first started out. Like, they were pretty turbulent times. Mm. The mid-80s on the back of the Rebel Tours and... He was just unflappable, wasn't he? Just came in and, yeah. And he was a real stroke player then. I remember my brother playing against him in under twenty one comp in in um, in Sydney. Um, and Tucker was he was the big name on the block, and he was dashing, you know, yeah. hook shots and smacking them everywhere. Eighty nine Ashes style. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, those back foot drive. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that was <laughs> the gun and more. Well, that, that the other thing in that 1989 tour, um, when I was over on this scholarship. When you were old Porky Gilchrist. When I was Porkster there, I came down my, my little terrace flat that I was living in the club presidents, or the chairman of the club. I was living in the the attic in the roof and came down and, and this, this chairman of this cricket club, over the years had housed a lot of young Aussie cricketers come over and help put them in clubs. And um, as it turned out, he'd had Stephen and Mark stay with him about two or three years on the on the hop. Right. When they were just getting into to club cricket and trying to make the sort of doorbell rings opening up and there's Stephen Roger War standing at the door. And I'm like, oh, what? What? What are you doing here? But um, So that was a pretty big thrill for a 17-year-old aspiring cricketer. My word. Take it so I didn't say too much really. Just came in looking for Welshie, the guy, the guy who he'd come to see, but. Um, yeah, by the end of it, big big follower of his, and love the way he, um, yeah, he challenged challenged the team in in unison with John Buchanan. So it was six Martin, six Marto probably was the the standout one of that that time. Eve, just beautiful. Oh, exactly. Yeah, but, and then you, you just wanted to watch him bat and bat and bat. It got but, to you, uh, and then and then the bowlers, um, which are. Oh, well, you're involving two of the bowl- greatest bowlers, yep. if not the greatest bowlers the country's ever seen. Um, Warney, who still makes headlines today. Um, <laughs> he's just come out of the jungle with Fev and he was just um, – what was he like to keep to? Oh, it was a whole lot of my career. Was it? Yeah, without doubt. It was the most special thing I did in cricket. Yeah, he and, and then McGrath at the other end. Um but Warney's it was just 
mesmerising. It was entertaining. Do you find yourself watching at times or not? Like, is it hard not to watch and think, wow, as well as thinking, oh, I've got to keep here? Oh, yeah, just... <laughs> Used to watch him and his antics, <laughs> and yeah, yeah. the the stuff he'd be saying to umpires, to batsmen, to 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 me or to the fielders, just so within earshot of the batsmen. It was it was the full package. It was the full entertainment package, and and clearly that's his whole life. Mm. It, the way it, his cricket was symbolic of his whole life, and. And that's just what it is. It's just 100 miles an hour, full on. And then he stops and slumps, you know, come off, go to his hotel room that night and you'll walk into his room and he's just exhausted. And then the next day he just cranks the motor up and it goes. But, um, yeah, the theatre of it. But just the skill, what he did. You cannot over-exaggerate just how difficult that is and how brilliant he was at it. Um, even through the stresses of finger surgery and shoulder surgery and everything, he was still just amazing. Did he have it? Uh, you were talking about going out to bat against Freddie and thinking, oh, yep. I might not walk out here. Could you see that in mm. batsmen walking out? Yeah, yeah, batting lineups. Lineups, oh, that's, that's handy, mate, isn't it? Lineups coming in and just being frozen. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, and then even. Even the great players, you, you still could see. Sachin was the only one who I really – well, there's been other times guys got him and BVS Luxman. The Indians did play him very well. Um, Sachin just looked and uh, in, at total ease against him. Um, but, yeah, pretty much everyone else. It was the English. He just had the, the whole English batting lineup bamboozled. Well, that 2005 series when things were going on off field, he yeah. was on the front page and he he got wickets, he made runs, he took catches, he mm. he, he did everything. He was under About forty wickets. Didn't he, he was under siege, runs. off the cricket field, but then he, yeah. he seemed to have that ability to get the job done on the cricket yeah. field. KP played him well that series. Yeah, he did really he did. well. So, did you know him that well? This is a bloke you stood next to. You know, he would have been slip a lot of that time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think I think I know him really well. Um, and there's been a lot of suggestion, maybe a, a bit made that perhaps he and I don't get on and aren't mates, but it, that that's certainly not the case. Right. But there's times when we locked horns, and I think there's times when I annoyed him because you're um, so opposite. Probably, uh, but, th- but having said that, there's a lot of similarity, a, a lot of things that we enjoy that are the same, and um. And we have, you know, share common opinion on. I mean, there was a tour of 1999 before we went to the England World Cup. We were in the Caribbean just for one day. And um, and I roomed with Warney. Um, and I remember it was a it was a great sort of 10-day stint because I, I was relatively new to it all and it was really good. Um, I, I felt, I think it was not long after that when I got picked in the test team and I thought maybe that, Altered the the dynamic a bit. I, I'm pretty sh- sure he felt Darren Berry should have been picked ahead of me, and he and Darren were really tight. Mm. So maybe that that sort of um, brought a bit of a grey area to the relationship. Again, it was a bit of a contradiction. He probably didn't want to, maybe necessarily thought that I should be there, but the keeper bowler relationship's a pretty unique one, and you and you need it. Of course you do. So, and I was 
forever asking him to bowl more at training or seeing if he would so that I could just get more familiar with him and get better at it. And he was good. He was very accommodating at that. So it was a funny, it was a, a funny old relationship. Um, if I missed something off him, I used to think, oh, dear, I don't want to stand next to you for the next over. And, huh. you know, I felt like I felt his silence a few times and but he was just so competitive. So, and I think eventually you learn that um, he's not, he, he can, that's the way he was with everyone. Like if someone else missed something, he'd be angry, but but then he'd get over it pretty quick and usually get him out and <laughs> game on. So he's sort of up and down a bit and, and my relationship with him would go up and down a bit. But the basis of it all, I think we've always got on pretty well and we still to this day do. I was talking to him the other day. So there's no no issue there and he's a... Uh, we we were all onlookers. It's almost felt like a bit like the Truman Show. You know, he was and he was Truman. He was Truman. <laughs> we, we were all just along for the journey, observing, playing our little bit part. But there was a bigger bigger star role at play, and it, it, it was. It, and it's been fascinating to be on that journey. Yeah, I bet. And at eleven, is uh, just Mister Consistent McGrath. You know, there was all that talk in recent times at the Aussies. You needed a bowl at one forty to play Test cricket. And mm. Your man, he just used to roll around one thirty three, one thirty four, yep. and well, you'd yeah. take the catches and you'd get Pfeiffer. We had that's right. Before we got to McGrath, there was Gillespie and oh, Lee, I suppose. Yeah, well, yeah, uh, but absolutely, but yeah, I mean those guys, that whole unit, and then you throw Kasparovich and Bickle. As, as the guys that seemed to come off the bench whenever there was a need, um, and you know a few others there, but but Pigeon just those guys talk about you know you talk about Parnham, me talk about Junior, those bowlers idolised Pigeon. They just did they? <laughs> oh, he was just such a he was he wasn't aware he was the leader of the pack, but they just sort of. Devoured everything he did around bowling and cricket, and they had great relationships. They pull the piss out of each other, but um, but McGrath was so highly respected and revered by those fellas. Um, yeah, it was it was great to watch and great to great to be a part of it. I probably sided more with the bowling group than the batting group, just because I felt that. Well, they're uh, the blokes you were batting with the whole time. They're, they're my allies if I was batting and then they're the ones that I'm in combination with. So they used to always say, yeah, come in, you know, bowlers meetings and batters meetings, they come on, mate, you come into the bowlers meetings. Mm. Uh, um, but, yeah, extraordinary extraordinary group of guys, tight, really strong friendships, um, you know, really so We were really together uh, off the field and everything we did and, um, yeah, Flemo, God, forget about him. Just the, the, the tours that we went on and, and um, the efforts that guys went to, like Flemo and Casper and Bick, to to provide the glue that makes everything stick together. Um, you know, the fun stuff, the, the, the um, stuff outside that's not expected you to do um, away from the training ground. Just really good, good times. And I think that carried us through and gained momentum. And, and that's the other thing, 2005, the first time I thought there was little fractures appearing in the group. Uh, again, it all happened on that 05 tour. Yeah. I'm going to finally drag us away from cricket now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're, I think we're about an hour in. Um, 
I'm going to drag us away from cricket if you can spare me another 15 minutes of your oh, time. Yeah. We, go to no. a, we go to a pub now and someone says... We're going to go now? No, no, we're not going oh, because... Okay. Well, let's get oh, to that. <laughs> how, how, how have you kept, How have you kept your reputation? We, we talked about you're seen as different to Warney. In three years you have become a legend not for your cricket at Channel 10, your ability to enjoy yourself, your ability to <laughs> stay... I'd say is the best thing. How do you keep yourself out of trouble? Good fellowship. When others, good well, people it, I'm with. I don't want to. And the later it gets, the better your fellowship is. Generally, <laughs> it's, it's got to be tricky for the modern sportsman because everything these days is blown up. It's social. Yeah. It's Instagram. It's the front page of the paper. Yeah, it is. It's everywhere, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I remember in 1997 Ashes tour. Mm. I went. That was my first sort of full blown picked. For Australia, I'd played some one days, but that was when Hills was injured, and that was it. But first time on a tour, selected, went there, and after <clears throat> after a test match in London, it was a, the, the second test at, at Lords. Uh, it ended up in a, a rained out sort of game. It was a bit of a frustrating one, and Ian Healy said to me, "We went out. All the team went out for a beer and and had a bit of a night out." And I remember, never forget Hill saying, after a test match, you've got to have a blowout. It's been such – you've had it <clears throat> probably three or four days, you know, really concentrated build-up leading into it, then five days. And it's nine, eight, nine, ten days of intense stuff. You've got to blow out, win, lose or draw. And, said, and then you dust yourself off the next day and you know, make sure you switch back on. And I've never forgot that. And I've, <laughs> I've tried to – you know, if you're doing something, I've – yeah, basically tried to carry through, commit, prepare, execute it, and then celebrate, and then get ready for the next one. So, so after every, would you say every big bash game is prepare <laughs> and then celebrate afterwards, or like no, some would I'm break not. it up to the end of season, Gil? Yeah. Others would sort of put a few more markers in there well, along the way. They're, they're big games, aren't they? They the are all bash. very big games. No, no, we're, we're up early and flying we to are. the next destination. We, aren't we, we are. So. Um, you, you mentioned that to her. Um, and people won't know, but those around you from the cricket fraternity, um, and it threw me at first because they'd, they'd call you church or yeah. they'd call you Eric, and sometimes you sign your text messages, Eric. Yep. Um, was this a name bestowed on you in that On, on that, that tour, tour, yeah. Little kid walking around the ground with uh, Steve Waugh and Glenn McGrath and a little kid runs up at in Bristol. So it's like a, a, a county ground, so kids and public get access to it. Runs up with his little program tour guide and instantly knows Steve Waugh, Steve Waugh, Steve Waugh, gets him to sign the picture there and, oh, Clem McGrath and gets Pigeon to sign that and then he looks at me and he's sort of thumbing through his book, <laughs> flicking pages, packing forward, going, what? Uh, and he says, are you Eric Gilchurch? <laughs> <laughs> Eric Gilchurch. And only two people heard that and that was Tugger and, and, uh, and, and Pidge and then that stuck. Yeah. So within the team, it was Churchy or Eric. That's one of the great nicknames. Yeah. It's got a great story going with it. Yeah. Um, well, what I was going to say was, if you if you walked into a pub now and you met a bloke and he said, oh, "G'day, my name's Frank. Um, you, my name's Gilly," and then the obvious question is, "What do you do?" Yep. How do you answer that question these days? What do I do? Yeah. Yeah, it's like filling out the, the yeah. form at, at passport control, isn't it? Or, it is, yeah. I never know what know, to put on that what's one. What's your occupation? Mm. All right, consultant. Consultant? <laughs> yeah. Well, they always get paid well, so that's a good start. I don't know what I'm consulting on, but that's what I write. Well, you've moved into the world of um, in the world of TV here at, uh, in Australia through the Big Bash and mm. how have you found 
it's how have you found that world? Because I've been in it for a while and I find it a, a bizarre world in many yeah. ways. How, how have you found the lights and the television cameras? Oh, look, I I think I've very very I've lucked right in in that where I've fallen into it mm. uh, with with your good self and the and the crew and with the big bash and and Channel Ten is just an amazing culture which I suspect. It, it goes in fits and spurts in in the entertainment industry and, and TV, right. uh, um, depending on where you are, what the show is, or the group you've got. Or, um, but as as I said, um, the night that our our team won that Logie, well done, Dave Barham, mm. head of sport there, to do a bit of research and really put some good time and thought into what team you're going to compile, rather than just pick it on games played or or you know where you're from or whatever just really invest a bit of time into um compiling that team and he he did that beautifully um but that's right not just the on-air crew but the off-air crew the production teams brilliant so that's so i've loved it um and then the opportunity to move on to other shows um i love the live component of it uh and then to go and have a a little Dibble at uh, something like the project, or so you're meeting other um, amazing people mm. um, who are really good at what they do. So you're seeing and learning from that, um, and then other sports, <laughs> a bit of F1, which yeah. is the ultimate live. The Australian Grand that Prix is, is that's that, as much as much fun as you can get, really, isn't it? Because right. that's where the rundown goes out the window, and yeah. you, you you lose the wire below the the map below you, and it's just oh. like all right, walk along the old wire. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, that was the best TV learning experience for me. Was I mean, it's great fun, but just mm. to be watching and listening, you know, yourself. I keep saying to you, not embarrassing you, but learning from the skills you have, and 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 you know, the 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 F one experts listening to them to learn about the actual event, but just the TV production that's unbelievable. And there's something. Maybe it is a bit of the revisiting the the feeling, the adrenaline rush of going out to play in the middle of, you know, lazing around the paddock club of of a Grand Prix and having your headset on and suddenly getting told, Gilly, you've got to have to go and pick up here because, you know, one of the boys isn't there or whatever and and you've got no idea what pictures are being shown, no idea, there's no director telling you exactly what because they're scrambling to get everything in order. There's no map. Yeah, so it's great fun. It's it's a buzz. Um, I've got a long way to go, but Jesus, it's good. Is good there a fun. point you look at and think, yeah, this is what I'd like to do? Or oh, I'd love to keep doing that. I, I, no, I, I don't know where. I haven't. Like I don't own, look at one particular area. You don't think you want this day with Gilly tonight? Type your own tonight <laughs> show. Or if we went to yeah. we went to Dubai together and um, yeah. at a at a cricket tournament. Um, the Oxygen Masters Champions League, where hopefully at some stage we get paid, Gil. Um, There's a few players around the world hoping for that too. I, I think so. Um, and, and you were playing. It was um, some oh, yeah. some Masters players and some current yep. players. It was really good cricket. And I was mm. up in the in the commentary box and by the last sort of couple of games, I'd look down on you and I'd think, mm, I don't know, I can't read his mind, but I think he'd probably rather be up here than down yep. there now. Was, yeah, was, that, was, was that the cessation of cricket for you? Yep. Totally. Yeah. Not, not that I'd played any cricket for three years no. prior. And don't get – if you're listening to the Howie games, have a look at the highlights. The man hit the third <laughs> biggest six in the whole competition history. Did I? Yes. Nice one. Um, Top edge. But it, it looked like then 
to me that you would have rather been up? First game was good fun, good novelty. Second game was starting to get a bit hard work and the last three or four were they were just a pain in the ass to Yeah, well, literally, <laughs> so I think you'd had a bit of a hamstring. A couple of hammy well. tighten up, but um, oh, which is which is I've not wondered since I retired whether I should have or shouldn't right. have kept playing. I, I've got no regrets about when I pulled out. I was lucky to have uh, the traditional career, I suppose, and then get a taste of of twenty twenty through IPL. Um, you know, clearly that's paid well over there, so it's not a bad little uh, superannuation payout. But um, if you get paid, yeah. Well, IPL you do get paid. Okay, but, I um, need to look into that tournament. Uh, but yeah, that no, I'd, I'd never thought. Geez, I, I might have pulled out too early. This tournament, as you know, just came out of nowhere, and sort of thought, oh, that would be a bit of fun, you know. But, Great. Um, but I found it. Yeah, I, by the end, definitely. I was literally in warm-ups looking over, watching you open the show, you know, do the pre-game and thought, I'd love to be doing that. Right. That's a bit of adrenaline there. It's funny because I would have loved to be walking out to that, <laughs> but I don't think I could have pulled it off. Not facing uh, uh, Brett Lee well, at 140 as he was still bowling or Tino Best, who was Tino on your Best. team. Yeah, he was on ours. Um, Fidel Edwards from the West Indies still looked yeah, pretty fast to me as well. I wasn't expecting that. No. Um we're getting to a conclusion because you've got things to do. Um, this is more of a, oh, this is, I don't know if you're a big one into life and the meaning of life and sort of esoteric questions, but I I think myself a lot about um, where I want to go and where I want to go in the family, not not in a work sense, but just, you mm. know, what I want to show them, what I, you know, what influences I want to give them. <laughs> you seem to be a man that He's had so much success, so money is not really an issue for you. You've you've had wonderful career success. You've got a beautiful family. Do you look at things in the future as far as your family's concerned? Or this is a bit of a rambling question. Think this is something I haven't got or had or experienced that I would still like to moving forward. It's a a pretty broad based Mm. question. That I like it. I like the question. I like sort of reflecting. Yeah, and and then hypothesising on what might lay ahead, but I, I've, I've never, I've never really known what you know. I, I joke today talking to kids at school about you know saying, "Oh, do you have you thought about what you want to do after school?" And they go, "Oh, no, I don't really know." And I, mm. I just joke and say, "Well, I, yeah, I'm wondering what I'm going to do mm. when I grow up." Mm. Um, so I've never really had a a plan. I've, I guess I've just always. Fortunately, I either learnt from mentors or people around me that I, I looked to, but always had eyes wide open, sort of for opportunity. Um, so, be it in a function, sponsors function, talk to people, meet them, find out, um, and who knows what opportunities might come out of that. Or while you're playing, commercial opportunities or TV opportunity, whatever it might be. So, no, I, in regards to the family. Um, Fortunately, we're in a position where, you know, we don't want for too much. No. Um, Which means you've got the ability to make those grander decisions because you might not be held back like... Yeah. I suppose they don't seem like the grand decisions, but having said that, it might sound a bit uh, egotistical or or a bit aloof to say we don't want for too much, but a big big part of that is Mel and I often saying we want to make sure that the kids don't get that mentality too early, so... Part of our um, something we take very seriously is making sure that they appreciate all the yep. 
you know, material and non-material things and, and that, that, you know, don't assume that everyone's in the same position and and so on and so forth. So that's a that's a big driver for us. But um, but as far as where I or, or the family, you, know, you just, I mean, the kids, it's, it's a, a cliche, but you just want them to get through through their teenage years eventually and into their own adult life and then they can make their own decisions. But... Um, but no, what what I want to do or where I want to be, I, I'm not sure. I've probably a bit like my batting. I've I didn't sit down and think mm. too much about it prior to it, and who knows where the innings took me. Um, I didn't go, intend to go out and you know score a hundred off you know lesser amount of deliveries. Um, some days it did, some days it didn't. Some things I tried got knocked over early, and so that's probably my philosophy on life. But but certainly. Um, if it's if it's not enjoyable, it's probably not worth doing. I like that. I, and we're talking about kids, so I'm going to play you something now because this is the way the Howie Games normally finishes. <laughs> um, as you know, I've got two children, yeah. Sky, who yeah. operates under the name six-year-old as the pickle, <laughs> and my four-year-old Mac, who woke up a year and a half ago and declared his name was the Big Penguin and he will only answer to the Big Penguin, <laughs> etc. Um, so I normally have a chat to them in the morning or it was last night because I had an early flight to come up here and see you in Sydney today and it was the pickle's turn yeah. and I tell her a little bit about you um, and then say, what would you like to ask him? Uh, and then they come up with a question yeah. um, and we record her on the phone and they get excited because they tell me, well, we be famous now. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to go, uh, this is a question from the pickle to you, Gil. Bring it on. Hi, Gilly. Pickle here. Me and the Big Penguin have a book about cricket and it's got all the different places um, you can play cricket in, like Pakistan. What's your favourite play? What's your favourite country to play cricket in? <laughs> nice work by the, the pickle. pickle. She sort of went down. I didn't think she'd go down the cricket route, very, but... She'll be very famous with yeah, those journalistic yeah. skills. Um, my favourite country to play cricket. She in. mentioned Pakistan she in did. there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was in the last official tour to Pakistan. Mm. Back in nineteen ninety-eight. Um, I would probably have to say, I think for for all that it contains and what it provides you, the the ups and downs, probably India. I think. So the little, I'm sure you'll get the pickle there one day. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'll show and the, the penguin. Will well. take it by storm, no doubt. But <laughs> he might uh, overheat a bit. The penguin in <laughs> India. He likes your cooler climates. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think India. It's, okay. Um, yeah, it's just you just get challenged on so many levels, but it can be so fulfilling and um, such a good experience. So that was probably my one of my favourite. Places to play, yeah. I think um, I think I've taken up enough of your time, Gil. Um, I uh, it's been a treat to sit down and have a chat with you. Um, I've found out more mate. about you, um, which is always good. Um, thanks for contributing to the Howie Games. I hope it hasn't been too much of a laborious process for you. The slightest, mate. I've well, look where well, we are. We are. We are. <laughs> We're looking over the, the Sydney Harbour. Uh, you've done all right for a wiki. It goes all right, doesn't it? Not for a, a wiki, spot, but for a wiki, you've done I'm all right. I'm not paying for this. I'm, <laughs> someone, someone else is paying for this. But right. Wonderful to chat, mate. Good on you, Gil. Yeah, pleasure. Cheers. I want my money back.
Gilly, what an absolute legend. Now, you must tell us what you thought of the Howie Games, what you liked, what you didn't like, suggested guests, etc. You can hit us up on Twitter or Facebook at MarkHoward03 or even send us an email to our brand new email address, thehowiegames at hotmail.com. Send us an email. We'll get excited. Next Thursday on the Howie Games, a man who is set to be involved in one of the biggest Australian sports stories of recent times when he takes on Anthony Mundine in the ring. The green machine, Danny Green, who was actually brought to tears last time these two fought. Yeah, man, I was very emotional. <clears throat> very emotional. Um, I went back to the, to the, to the change rooms and I, um, I cried. But I didn't cry because I lost to Anthony Mundine. I waited till I got back to the change rooms, and I waited there and waited till the doors were shut, and then I, you know, then I, I kind of I broke down. But I broke down for not because I, um, you know, lost the fight. The Howie Games is produced by Michael James, a good man in a crisis. The theme song we recorded in a surf camp in Jamaica with the godfather of Jamaican surf, Billy Mystic. Now, I don't know much about music, but he is seriously, seriously cool. Check him out and keep an eye out for his episode coming soon. Thanks all to the Pickle and the Penguin for their input. Remember, spread the word, like us on iTunes, share the love. It'll come back to you. We'll speak to you next Thursday. Peace. If we try, try, try. Listener.